Well, thank you, worship team. Neat, uh, especially that last song. Praise the Lord, right? Anybody want to give God a clap offering here and thank him? So I want to thank the church for the last few. I actually, I wasn't, I wasn't sure so many of you would show up today. All that wild partying you were doing over the weekend. And I'm delighted to see you. And man, uh, we've had some really good days. Last Sunday, I thought a riot was going to break out in this place. We were having so much fun, especially with that test, right? That Christmas test. Thought we were going to get to fisticuffs. That was awesome. You need to see a little excitement in church, you know what I mean? Any kind. So anyway, a lot of fun, and thank you for making it fun for me. Thank you for everyone's um, support and uh, love toward us, and it's right back at you, okay, Harmony? It really is. So I thought I might say a few things since today is my final word. Actually, that's not totally accurate. So when, when uh, we did my farewell party, which was a great idea to do that early, I really loved it. It was great, right? And uh, everybody wasn't as worn out as we are now. And uh, that was my final message, really. Except today is my final, final message, which really isn't my final, final, final message because next week I have a little part in the service, so I get one more crack at it, you know what I mean? So today is kind of, and so I thought with that being true, though, I ought to make a few things clear because I've had a lot of, um, a lot of people ask me, and what are you doing? Um, I was going to sell everything we have, and we're going to travel around the world like vagabonds. Yeah, sounds like fun, actually, but certain things don't work once you have grandchildren, it can't happen. So... And those of you with grandchildren all said, oh, amen, Pastor John, we know that. Too much fun. So just so you know, we are not moving from the area because I have a mom who is going to be 93 this year living over in Fishkill. Yeah. May I follow in her DNA footsteps except for the triple bypass. I don't want that part. But yeah, that was 20 years ago. The doctor said, you have 10 good years, and like I tell her, the the warranty already ran out, you know? But anyway, so we're staying around, keep an eye on her. We have kids all over the state, as you know, and we'll be traveling a lot to see them and and be with them and visit uh, churches. People ask, are you going to be coming to church here? The answer, class? No. No. Several reasons. You have a new shepherd standing in, and he needs to be able to lead his way as the Lord leads him without uh, the old guy looking over his shoulder, you know what I mean, or feeling that way. Now, I can't say what the future would hold, anything God wants to arrange. We actually get along, right, Dr. Ashley? He likes me. I like him too. And Pastor Tim, and we've been a good team together. It's been great, and if God arranges that again, I'm open, whatever. But we really need to have an end point and move on point, and so it's his turn to, to lead And uh, I'm going to just say, if you contact me in the next month or two and I don't get back to you anytime soon, don't take it personally. I'm living off the grid, baby. (laughs) I may not even be conscious for all I know, but, you know, wait, wait, I'm watching TV. I can't be bothered, you know. So, but if you contact me for pastoral care, I'm just going to be straight up. I'm going to send you to your pastor. 
because that's what I would have wanted done for me. And I learned a long time ago, if you're a shepherd or a, uh, you know, it's like you work a field, you don't plow or shepherd in another man's flock or field. You just don't do that. And so God bless Dr. Ashley as he takes the lead and works with Tim and Catherine, and may they all be blessed in that process. So just wanted to make that clear so you knew that we weren't dissing anyone, that we love you, but we are getting off the grid for a while, okay? Like Bourne. Remember Bourne? I mean, i got to get off the grid. Don't even use a cell phone or they'll find you. Anyway, you guys need to get out more, watch some movies. Anyway. One other thing I have to mention is over the years, people have given me all kinds of gifts. We've had so much fun here on occasion, right? One of the things I just remembered this morning, I tried to give to somebody. Well, actually, I, Dennis, I tried to give your wife one, but I took it back. Um, anybody remember when we were the island of misfit toys? Where the, where's, uh, where's it? Teddy, you got me the game, right? Didn't you bring me the game? The island of misfit toys. If you don't remember, I can't help you, brother. I just even counseling isn't going to help. But anyway, so I've got all these little misfit toy cards. Anybody want to join the club? I'm leaving them up here. Here, she's got one. She's got one. What are you? Uh, Charlie in the box. Okay, broke. I got a broken. I got a broken choo-choo train here. Broken plane. Uh, who is the fun one? Is an L? Oh, here's the guy in the uh, Jack in the Box. Remember him? It's Rudolph. If you don't know what we're talking about, it's the Rudolph movie, one of the great theological treatises of all time. Anyway, these are all up here just for the fun of it, a happy memory. It really was fun because what we did was we admitted together, we're all misfits. Duh. I haven't used that enough for a long time. I'm going to go through withdrawals probably. Duh. Yeah, we're all misfits somewhere along the line, right? We're all in the growth process. Nobody has arrived. Uh, I'll stay off of that or I'll be preaching a mini-sermon and I'll run out of time. But they did minister worship this morning tightly so that I can wax eloquent for the next 45 minutes. Did you hear our worship leader over here? That was on purpose, so don't blow it. Anyway... Which means, get on with it already, you turkey. So, I'm, I miss that. I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach. So, so, but I just need to mention, I, I didn't know where to begin or end with this, with little gifts, people. You've given me so many things. I've got, about, I've got a collection of about 400,000 Yodas. I mean, I'm not kidding. I, I could probably put it up for sale and make a lot of money. I don't know. I got all these Yodas, but... I got to show you the the latest big item that some were homemade, some were kids' pictures of Yoda and all kinds of fun stuff. And I don't know where they got the idea that I like Yoda. I I don't understand. Help you, I will. Anyway, but this one's pretty cool, right? This is not really Yoda. It's not even baby Yoda. But it talks. Bop it to start. I score 16. Bop it. Twist it, pull it. Then it tells you how badly you did. Anyway, it doesn't take much to amuse me, I got to tell you. That was pretty cool. I won't tell you where that came from. Then uh, I had a wonderful gift from one of our little karate students who was part of our church family. And uh, Adelaide, uh, 
Ambrosino drew a likeness of me, how I look on the karate floor. I want you to see how accurate this is. All the missing hair, perfect. Black belt, I mean, that is me, isn't it? It's like, wow! I've kept that, it's been about a year and a half she gave this to me. It was a riot, so I like that one. But I have to tell you who the winner is. And there were a bunch of really good, so, you know, when, you, when you're judge and jury, it makes it hard. I have to tell you who the winner is, because Vince Sherlock, <laughs> Vince Sherlock found this, the Hawkman action figure toy. I didn't, you know what bothers me? I haven't gotten any money or rights or anything from this. And they stole me. Hawkman, awesome. For those of you who don't know, I've been Hawkman 2 at AOL for like 30 years, so. I... Well, I'm feeling the hate here, huh? Actually, I'm number three because somebody took Hawkman, then someone took Hawkman 1, and by the time I tried to get the domain, I had to sell with two, and I don't like being second place. <laughs> anyway, so now it's time to look into the word together, and uh, I'm going to ask that you join me in prayer, okay? <laughs> thank you for this assembly, God. Thank you for the growing little flock and the illuminations and ambitions for God that have been manifesting, and I'm asking that you pour lots of oil on that fire. I didn't think I was going to get emotional, but I think about this, praying for this assembly to prosper, for her shepherds to process, prosper, for her people to prosper, for the ministries they put their hand to that they know are being led by you to prosper and to bear fruit. Help us now to hear from your Holy Spirit, Lord. I am unable to drop anything into the spirit of my brothers and sisters. But you, Holy Spirit, are able. So please help us today. In the great name of Jesus, I ask for your help. Amen. 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 All right. So I'm going to do like, and I, I do not think I'm all that in a bag of chips. I think you know that about me at this point. But um, all the greats, especially my Old Testament favorite characters, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, who is actually my very favorite Old Testament prophet for a number of reasons. All of them have their parting words to the people of Israel. And I'm stealing one, okay? So I'm going to steal the big guy's name, Moses, his little sermonette, a final word, and it is my final word to us as a congregation, except for my final, final word next week. And this is to speak life to you. It's found in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, but I added 16 as well. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. We can stop right there. Okay, I'll read the rest in a minute. But Moses, Joshua, Samuel all see the end time coming for them. I'm hoping that I'm still alive in a couple of weeks. Because after Moses gave this little series of sermons, he went up on the mountain and went to see Jesus. 
and uh, I'm ready to go see Jesus, but I need a little more time yet. I have set before you today life and prosperity. Get these words, death and adversity. That's a good word. You can generally say life and death. And you know Moses at one point says, choose life. Choose life. God is life itself. Choose his way. In that I command you today, here's the way to life and prosperity in your soul. Love the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. I want blessing on you. God's in the blessing business. Did you know that? He is. He's in the blessing business. So this is a, um, what the prophets would call the burden of the Lord. This has been on my mind for months, especially the second half. In fact, it's probably been on my mind more than a year. But the first part I want to get across is how much God is a blesser. We just went through Christmas time, right? And we, peace on earth. Goodwill toward men, right? And uh, we want to hear that. Ble- oh, we love that. The blessed Christmas angels are telling everybody, who to you is born a savior. He wants to bless. God is a blesser. He is a life giver. It's his inclination to bless. So worship him, serve him. The Old Testament language says, cling to him for he is your life. Cling to him for he is your life. So the reason I'm saying this is there's two parts to it. Obviously, I set before you today life and prosperity, and there's also the other side, adversity. And I'm not talking about adversity. You know, we're living in adversity. Here we are, another uptick in COVID variants and all of the. Oh, is this ever going to stop, you know? But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the adversities that happen to us that don't need to happen. Sometimes we've opened the door for the enemy to pummel us, and sometimes we've invited God to oppose us. And that's what we don't want. So that's what I'm talking about. All right? So harmony right now is in a good place. There's this hunger for reaching out and thinking through what we're doing, that we don't um, park where we used to always park. And I'm going to read something in a few minutes that really kind of captures what happens to most churches. We get ingrown, right? We get wrapped up with, we care for ourselves and which is a good thing, but there's a whole world out there that God wants to bring into his forever family. So we've got some hunger to reach out and, uh, that work needs a dependent attitude upon God. He is your life, so cling to him, obey him. You know, one of my hobby horses has been the issue of prayer, which I consider myself a teenager in. Anybody is really honest with themselves. I've met some people who aren't always honest with themselves because they, I think they can't be. They really think they've arrived. And anyone who thinks they've arrived in the school of prayer is probably missing something. Maybe you've noticed, unless you're raising people from the dead on a regular basis, which I would love to know about. You know what I'm saying. So prayer is a manifestation of our dependence, which is why we instituted the after-service prayer times, which we will pick up again, or you will pick up again in the new year under the leadership of your shepherd. But praying because we need God to energize our efforts. 
so that it's not just nice religious activity, right? So, I'm speaking this morning particularly, and I said this in our time of prayer before we came out here, I'm speaking particularly to those who are owners. Do you know what I mean by an owner? If you own the store, then it matters to you that the front light isn't on. It matters to you that the open for business sign burned out. It matters to you that somebody left a pile of trash on your front doorstep. If you own the store, it matters to you. I'm just going to let that hang there. Because too often, my experience in the nine years of Christmas as I've been here, it doesn't matter. And it needs to for the sake of Jesus' kingdom advancing. So when you're an owner and you who are here going, yes, that needs to change. Yes, I get that. And there are people in this room that are owners. Little flock people. Little flock are the ones hearing God. You know, Jesus said to them, uh, be of good cheer, little flock. The Father has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. You don't get anything bigger than that, friends. I hate to fill you in. I don't care which yacht you're planning to buy or Mercedes. It doesn't get better than the kingdom. I got an amen. I got one witness out there. Hallelujah. <laughs> All right, too late. Anyway, <laughs> so my point is, those who are part of the little flock who have ears to hear, some of you are owners. I'm pleading with you to make this happen, to go for it. First one, embrace life. Your little notes, if you want to fill them in, I left you notes because I thought there's some space there. The Holy Spirit might tell you something today. You want to write it down so you don't forget. If I didn't write stuff down, I guarantee you I'd forget it. And I have a fairly good memory, at least before I got all this gray hair. So I need to write it down. But embracing life. I'm going to show you three verses very quickly, sections of the scripture, that talk about how God wants to bless. Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, is one of the grandest theological treatises on the power and nature of the church of Jesus. Did you know that? It is. In fact, we don't even know that it really was written to the Ephesians. We think it was a circulatory letter to all the churches in Asia Minor, as we say in New York City. Asia. That was a little humor. It didn't go very far, did it? Anyway, Asia Minor. Here's one of the great texts. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. This is chapter 1. So that you may know what is the hope of his calling. That hope word means expectation, not just I hope so. It's expectation. He has an expectation of his calling on us. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? You catch that? It's not just about where do you get to heaven. It's about now. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? When I used to deal with demonized individuals, back in Tucson especially, but even through our seasons in upstate New York, this passage was what I would pray to punch the enemy in the nose. I'm dead serious, right? What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? 
These were manifested by Jesus' revealed power, by God raising him from the dead and seating him in a position far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, demonic generals, demonic sergeants, whoever they are. He's above them all. He's crushed the head of Satan with his heel. We need to take that authority and drive it against the enemy's work. So that's what we used to do. We'd use that kind of a text. The surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. In other words, we need to remind Satan who's boss. And it's Jesus. And if we're aligned with him and not goofy like the seven sons of Sceva, look that up yourself, book of Acts. If we're aligned with Jesus, then we are his agents. The boss's agent. The boss says, get out. Guess what? Two of you believe me. But we're weak, right? God works through us broken, fractured people. Isn't that a mystery? Yeah. I still I don't understand. Why? Wouldn't it have been easier if you just sent angels to go preach the gospel? Because we're kind of funky. You know. A little bit weak, stumble here and there, right? Here's what, here's what Paul says about that from another book. And we'll come back to Ephesians in a minute. We have this treasure, this treasure, the Holy Spirit, the new birth, all of this in earthen vessels. We have this gospel treasure that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. That God would get glory because he uses us. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit um, just to mention it, and I'll reprise it when I get to that part of my notes. And that is, God uses people. He uses clean vessels. Not perfect. Aren't you glad? Good, because I'd be out. Clean. What do you have to do to be clean? Ask for forgiveness. How easy can it get? The greatest mental health verse in the Bible, right? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to... Which means you're clean. From that point on, if I'm aligned with the boss, his power flows through me for whatever he wants me to do. I'll come back to that, okay. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. But because we look at our own limitations and our own weaknesses, and we know some of our dirty past we hope nobody ever finds out about, or we know how I said naughty things two days ago, I got mad at that driver. I know that's one of my favorites. I don't know why, but it's just one of my favorite illustrations. It's not my problem. I'm just saying it's one of my favorite. (laughs) No, staying on task. Okay, so because of that, we can't always see and we tend to be real timid. Our expectations of God are really kind of, oh, I I don't know. What was was those people, the the whiners? Wasn't it the whiners? Oh, no. I don't know. I don't think that can work. (laughs) C.S. Lewis said, our problem is we're content with far too little. God wants to do more than we can. Let me read it to you. Back to Ephesians, Paul's prayer, commending the church to God. Now to him who is able to do what? 
exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Exceeding abundantly. So what I'm trying to say, brothers and sisters, is God is a blesser. He wants us to have life and prosperity. When I say prosperity, too many Americans get that wrong. Oh, good, I'm going to have lots of money and toys and everything I want. And he wants prosperity for the kingdom. You need to have that in your heart. And you know what? So many times I found, especially in our culture, if you have that in your heart, God will bless with you all the other toys you don't even deserve. But we always put the wrong thing first. Oh, I know I'm preaching, right? Hey, you gave me one more week. It's your fault. <laughs> so we can't see it. Sometimes we just can't see him using us. But he can do exceedingly abundantly more than we ask or think. So I'm just encouraging you as you dependently pray and seek God for his power to fill what you want to accomplish. You lean in, trusting him to do more, perhaps, than you were expecting. Sometimes I think about it, um, how much I had to learn because I came from a broken home, fatherlessness. Um, my early church experiences, some were really good and most of them were good, some not so much. There were a few people who poured into me, but over 50 years, I had to learn all kinds of things about ministry. I had to learn the warfare thing. I had a little bit that I learned uh, in seminary, but most of it was on the field, getting my head bashed in. And years and years of experience, there's a certain amount of stuff you see God do. You begin to see how he works and you expect it. You expect him to show up. Why am I saying that? Because you don't need somebody to lead you by the nose. You need to jump in and say, okay, I'm willing to learn. Lord, let's go. Do you think he's faithful? Do you think he's able? He taught a fatherless man how to father his children. So he's able. The same God is alive for you that was alive for me and every other character you read about in the scripture, right? We're going to read a little later about Elijah was a man like us. He prayed earnestly, right? He's just like us. No, no, he was one of those spiritual people. Oi, anyway, so he struggled. Did you know he struggled with depression? You know, he almost gave up. You know, he was a whiner. That's why I like him. <laughs> Lord, I'm the only one left. Anyway, who has more fun than people? My wife always tells me. He can do more than you know. Step into dependent prayer. I want to read. This was funny. Last week, I'm thinking about this message, and I'm cleaning my bookshelves out, right? I'm emptying my, my office for the next man. It's a nice office, by the way, Dennis. It's going to be nicer. So I'm pulling books off the shelf, and I see, with Christ, does anybody know this? Andrew Murray. Yeah, with Christ in the school of prayer. It's a classic. 
Now, if you don't know about Andrew Murray, he was a South African Dutch Reformed pastor who prayed down revival in his church. And my wife and I stopped in that church and I went through the building touching all the seats, hoping some of it would rub off on me. <clears throat> Doesn't usually work that way, brothers and sisters, just saying. You, the way you touch it is you get on your knees and pray till it shows up. Anyhow, I pull this thing off the shelf and I open to the one marker that I have. And guess what it says? Come on, guess. No, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> Let me read it to you. It just speaks to what I'm saying. He can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, right? No, I don't always see it all. I don't always get it all. I get that, right? But maybe five steps more than we've ever experienced so far would be a lot of fun, right? Who can say... Andrew Murray says, what power a church could develop and exercise if it gave itself to the work of prayer day and night for the coming of the kingdom, for God's power on his servants and his word, for the glorifying of God and the salvation of souls. Most churches think that their members are gathered into one simply to take care of and build up each other. If you can't tell where he's going, he's saying that's not true, although it has been. They know not that God rules the world by the prayers of his saints. How? You wonder why I think I'm just barely a teenager. That prayer... He rules the world by the prayer. That prayer is the power by which Satan is conquered. That by prayer, the church on earth has disposal of the powers of the heavenly world. They don't remember that Jesus has, by his promise, consecrated every assembly in his name to be a gate of heaven. Where his presence is to be felt and his power experienced in the Father fulfilling their desires. Their desires that are aligned with Jesus, you see? If you gather two or three, what? In my name. Align your desires with me. I'll give you the desires of your heart. Wow. I'm a religious fanatic, sorry. <laughs> he had one line that I've used at prayer meetings before, and I'll just, it was from the page before. And let me just give you a little hint. This whole chapter with Christ in the school of prayer is called 15th lesson, if to agree, the power of united prayer. He said this, a prayer meeting without recognized answer to prayer ought to be an anomaly. I hate meddlers like that, don't you? But his point was in this chapter is that if I gather with others to pray, unless I've been cultivating my roots of prayer privately, what do you think is going to happen just because we've gathered together if there's no sap, no flow? So I dig down in my own personal life, and then when we're in love with Jesus and we get together, it's like, we want your will here. Please show us clearly what you have in mind. Okay, so that's the life speak. Now comes the hard part. Uh-oh, yeah. Right? Dependent prayer. I'm going to repeat it at the end. I was thinking of it as I pulled that book off the shelf, and I thought, you know what? A church thoroughly right with God is unstoppable. 
So here's the next one. Resisting adversity, and I've already explained that I don't mean every possible adverse, economic turndowns, difficulties, you know, somebody let the air out of your tires, these kind of things happen. We all live in this world that's broken, right? But I'm talking about adversity that I don't have to really put up with. In other words, it may not be God's will for me to tolerate this. Give an example. We'll pull that passage I promised we talk about in James You'll recognize it. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Now, that doesn't mean we don't use doctors, and it doesn't mean that God's going to heal everybody every time. In fact, I think the secret in this is what does it mean to pray in faith? I think God has to quicken that. But listen to the overall principle. Is any? I mean, let's be honest. Mostly when I get sick, I deal with it myself or I go to the doctor first. How many times it doesn't even show on my radar to simply say, God, can you get me through this and get it over with? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered, quickened by the Holy Spirit in faith, will restore the one who's sick. Oh, and by the way, the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed, we don't know that that's the case. Every time a person's sick, it's not because of sin. Except in the ultimate sense, the whole world is messed up because of sin. We get that. But not his personal sin. But if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. What? In other words, we generally dismiss the idea that our bad behavior could be the reason for adversity. As if God doesn't discipline his children. Like you discipline you or better than you discipline you. Oh, I don't know. Is, am I, is anything registering here? It's awful quiet. They will be forgiven. If, if that's the cause, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Why? It can be emotional healing. It can be sin sickness healing. It can be physical healing. It can be go, go down the line. I'm going to give you some examples because I have found this to be true. There is at times adversity that is connected to what we're doing wrong. He's trying to get the point across. Come my way, work with me, and I'll take this adversity away. I'll give you an example. There's no way around this one out of 1 Corinthians. The instruction on the Lord's table he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he doesn't judge the body rightly. Everybody knows this, right? You've, you've heard it, read it, I hope. Um, I, in fact, I just had a conversation with an old dear brother from up north. He said, I'm going to a church where the pastor doesn't warn people. And I said, well, there's no law in the scripture that says he has to warn you every time. But once in a while, it's not out of order when we're taking the Lord's table to say, by the way, what this whole context means is if you're sticking your fist in God's face saying, get out of my life, you should probably not be worshiping by taking the Lord's table. Hello. But it has nothing to do with those of us who know we're weak and we stumble and we struggle and all. He's inviting us to the table to get cleaned up and enjoy refreshment. That's why it's there. That's why he commands it to do it regularly. All right, you didn't expect a sermon on... The Lord's table, but it, that was free. I'm not even going to charge you for it, okay? 
For this reason, look at what it says. If you don't judge that activity, that worship, in other words, your disregard for God. Oh, man, I could do a whole thing on worship this morning. I'm thinking about, no, well, it's getting a little, it's getting tight. But I just think about how many of, how many of us blow off our worship time. So God doesn't matter, it doesn't matter whether he's the audience. He is the audience, not you. So I think people have gotten saved and stunted their spiritual lives. They've never grown up and learned how to worship in multiple contexts. To give God the glory. It's one of the fun things I'm looking forward to doing. I'm going to wander around, visit churches, and I'll go, that was awesome. That, I won't go back. And that, and, and uh, I just learned what never to do in church. Oh, you know, that kind of thing. But we should grow in that, right? So, I'm sorry. So now back on task. For this reason, many among you, what does it say? are weak, physically debilitated is what it means. Look it up. And sick, and a number sleep. I know a lot of people sleep on Sunday morning, even when I'm preaching, but that's not the point. What is he talking about? What is sleep? It's death for the believer. God said, you are dishonoring me so badly, I'm taking you home so you don't do that anymore. Come on home. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. If we would take a personal assessment, which was what communion was when we were young, when old guys like me were young, we were admonished every time. Self-examination, right? Make sure we've put our sins before God and we're refreshed in the spirit. That's why it was there. If we would judge ourselves rightly, we wouldn't be judged. It's pretty clear. So what I'm talking about here, I'm going to tap into my, one of my old favorite guys, not anymore, you should probably stop, but Charles Stanley had some really great stuff. I'm going to tell you about a divine principle. This is a divine principle. Yeah, that's it. Listen, listen to me. It's a divine principle. It's like my old friend A.B. Blair in Tucson used to say, you can't sow your wild oats and then pray for crop failure. You're listening, okay. It's a divine principle that God uses clean, not perfect, vessels. Amen. You're not perfect? Yay. You're part of the club. But clean, you have to do something about it. Yielded vessels. Sometimes we don't realize it, but it's true anyway. The human mind cannot bear very much reality. I think it was T.S. Eliot that said that. We don't want to look inside and see what's broken. We don't. We hate it. I, don't, I can't bear to look. Did you all see um, uh, George C. Scott's um, Christmas Carol? The scene where the Christmas present guy, who I love that guy, he's a riot, with the beautiful robe, he says, look upon your children. And he opens his robe, and there are these two pathetic children. Ignorance and want. And what does he do, uh, Scrooge? Cover them. I do not wish to see them. That's us. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. It's always somebody else. It's always something at the church. It's always that other. It's always everybody else we never think about. Maybe I'm the one. 
Maybe I'm running from church to church for 40 years is not going to fix your broken inside. Hunkered down with some real saints, with some owners, and I guarantee you, he'll change you. It'll work. The gospel works. The Holy Spirit hasn't lost his stuff. Hate to tell you. He's eternal. He's not going to change. Here's some examples of what I'm talking about. I, I've shared this story before, but when I was pastoring in, in uh, upstate, there was a sister who had relatives that all had gotten married like she had, but they were having babies and she wasn't. And you know what? She hated their guts. Hated them. Her jealousy was so intense. And I'll never forget praying with her, pushing on the fact, do you realize how ugly you are to God right now? And the lights came on. She broke down and wept. And she let go of her bitterness. She got right with God. God removed the adversary. I'll never forget it. I felt the Holy Spirit say, lay hands on her and give her, ask God to give her what she wants. And nine months later, she was a mother. That's just one of many examples. We think, and, and the next illustration I'll use in a minute, next text will point to it. We think, oh, uh, we, you know, we did something back then. We were, we were not quite you know, clean. We, we took that stuff and we never made it right. Or we slept with each other and didn't tell anybody. And then we wonder why we're having difficulties later on. God brings adversity to get us to clean it up. Well, you think, oh, that was 10 years ago. Who cares? Christians have this weird idea. They take one verse out of context in the scripture from Paul, forgetting what lies behind. Oh, I'm so righteous. I'm forgetting what lies behind. Yeah, well, you crushed 15 people. They're not forgetting what lies behind. I forget what lies behind. I'm pressing on to the mark. You're not pressing anywhere. You're dragging a ball and chain behind you. I'm going to use an illustration to, to get... Here's the best part. When I give in to God and say, okay, I'll look at it and I'll admit it and I'll ask for the simple truth that the blood of Jesus cleanses me from all unrighteousness, he means it. And once in a while, I need to pray that with somebody else. But it works. That you may be healed. Confess your faults so that you may be healed. And all of a sudden, oh, I'm free. It feels so good to get free. It feels so good. Guaranteed. It's liberating. Here's the point I'm, I'm aiming. I haven't preached anything really hard yet. So, Here's where I'm going. Churches are just like people. Because they are people. But we have personalities and we have history. So I'm going to tell you a very unusual story. It's from the Old Testament. Remember, Saul was not a great choice for a king. We've all learned about leadership these days, haven't we? In the public forum that some leaders are good and others aren't so good. I ain't asking you what you think at all. I'm just saying. Saul didn't do too well. God sought out a man after his own heart. His name was David. David took over the king. He killed Goliath. That was the big 
you know, big press release, that one. And then later he becomes king and then he sets up his kingdom and they go through a civil war because of those loyal to Saul and years go by and he finally solidifies his kingdom. Then he has an internal um, capital riot takes place with some guy named Absalom. And he weathers all of that. And so now probably decades have gone on. And David's kingdom is secure and he's loving the Lord and God's blessing is on the people of God. And they go through three years of famine. And here's what it says. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year, David sought the presence of the Lord and the Lord said, it is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. What? That was like two to three decades back. Are you kidding me? Now, here's the story. I, I don't want to take too much time because I got another story to tell you. I got lots of stories. <laughs> True stories. The Gibeonites, this is the fun thing. Do you remember when the walls of Jericho fell down? And by the way, I forgot to say hi, Mel. <laughs> I saw you earlier and I forgot to say hi. One of our teachers right here in the front. Praise the Lord. Anyway, and you go back and tell Pastor John we're okay. Anyway, so, sorry, everybody. That was a little sidebar you got to. It's like looking in my cell phone, you know what I mean? Get out of here. Anyway, so, it is for Saul and his bloody house. Here's what happened. You remember when the walls of Jericho fell down? There was a woman. She was not perfect. And it, Ahab. Ahab. Uh, Rahab. What was her name? Oh, what was her job? She was a prostitute. But they knew what was happening through the children of Israel, that there was an almighty being working with them. And she goes, I'm in. I'll help you out. And she gets rescued and her whole family. Faith rescues her whole family, right? This is the same kind of story. They're moving on from Jericho. They've just taken Ai. And the next few towns up are some of these Hittite people, the Gibeonites. And they go, we got to do something. Because this God is unstoppable. They were filled with fear, but also belief. So they come to Israel and they talk to uh, Joshua and they say, make a covenant with us. Because uh, we've come from far away. They lied. And the, and the Israelites leaders go, okay, we'll make a covenant. We won't destroy you. Uh, but you're going to have to live by our rules. And Oh, yeah, we're in. Then they found out they had been lied to. And so they made them servants. Fair enough. But because of the covenant they made with them, they promised God they would not destroy these people. And Saul, in his enthusiasm, his radical right wing, whatever, I don't care whether you like it. I'm saying what this radical, I'm going to do, oh, let's kill them too because they're not Israelites. And God said, you just blew it royally. Twenty years plus later, God says, you need to clean this up. Oh, we don't like this, do we? If you've confessed everything, you don't have to clean it up again. It's done. But if you haven't, sweeping it under the carpet is inviting adversity. So I'm going to park here. 
People get defensive with me. I think people have been angry at me because I have the burden of being a prophet and saying there's something broken here that still needs to be purged. You know, in the New Testament, anybody ever read the book of Revelation? We like to read that faster than anything else, right? Woo, I know everything that's going to happen. It says it right here. Yeah, good. Yeah, tell me about it. I'd like to know how it's all going to happen. Anyway, a little bit mysterious, that book. You may have noticed. The first three books, though, for two, chapter 2 and 3, what are they? Letters to churches, actual churches. Have you ever noticed how many of those churches God said, Hey, I know you did this. Good job. I know you did that. Really good job. Hey, that was wonderful when you did that. Oh, I have something against you. Anybody remember that? I mean, it's in the Bible. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm having a good time. You all go home and hope you recover. Take an Advil. Anyway, you get the point. Yes, you did this well. You did this well. But I have something against you. Recently, I've had brought back to my face, even Jesus' hand was tied by the unbelief in his hometown at Nazareth. Remember that? He could do no mighty works there. So that's adversity. I don't want adversity. It's come clear to me, and I, I, I encountered it, and I tried to coach us through it. We've had, on my watch, before my watch, uh, Pastor Bricker led you through a, a, a solemn assembly, and then on my watch, we redid it because there were an awful lot of letters we had to write to ask forgiveness. Anybody remember any of that? And people did it. All I'm saying is we're not done. I'm not saying... We have to have another solemn assembly formally. This will be Pastor Dennis's purview, how to handle it. But there are some stories I know about that need restitution. Just recently in a funeral, I found out about a young lady, went through our school, was continually abused. Has anybody on behalf of the kingdom people here gone and said, would you forgive us? We're so sorry that that happened. I'm not saying you did it. Have you ever noticed that the prophets, who, by the way, knew God and loved God? Anybody get that? They, they knew God. They would say, we and our fathers have sinned. It doesn't mean that they're personally guilty. It means they're taking ownership. And on behalf of God and his people, they're saying, we blew it. Purge this for us. So I'm encouraging the owners to go for the juggler on this. Think of the power that could be released. Think of the lives that are out there that I know about that won't set foot here or don't want to be here or actually hate Jesus because some of the things that have happened. Think of those lives potentially turned back. It's not about you. It's not about our reputation. <clears throat> Sometimes, oh, we don't want to dishonor God. You're dishonoring God when you're lying about things, when you're not coming clean. That's dishonoring God. Can't tell you how many ministries have tanked because, oh, we have to protect the flock from knowing that. Big mistake. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he shall. I set before you life and adversity, right? Life and prosperity or adversity. I'm just going to read one more thing, go pretty quickly on this, but... The, the series we did on gifts stirred up a lot of people, which was kind of fun. And so one of our sisters here wrote me this thing uh, asking this. I have a question. 
She's become more sensitive and thought back on times she has felt like the Holy Spirit at work or demonic presence at work. And here was the last question. Almost every time I've had a sense of there being a demonic presence, it's been at a church. I'm really bothered by that. Why would that be? Who wants to answer that one? Okay, class. Ten extra points on your final if you want to answer that. Number one, it shouldn't be surprising in any church where the Holy Spirit wants to work because it's a battleground. And so he could manifest at any point. In the middle of a service, a person under demonic influence can go, woo-hoo-hoo, make life exciting. As happened to a brother I know from the Canadian Revival Fellowship, who the lady in the church called him later and said, why did you do that? And he goes, what did I do? This person went, woo-hoo-hoo. Wasn't his fault. Blame the preacher, you know what I mean? Anyway, so where was I going? Oh, that's one possibility. The other possibility is there's a foothold. I'm just going to say it. It's not just one person in this building, but many, not, I shouldn't say many, several, have spoken to me of sensing that very thing. So that's why I'm saying, put your armor on, get aligned with God, clean it up, and let him have it. Did you ever see that great spiritual movie, The Magnificent Seven? (laughs) The little Mexican village drives out the bandit. The first skirmish, the bandits ride away. And uh, one of the gunslingers says to this Mexican guy he's sitting next to with their guns, he said, uh, bet you're right about now you wish you hadn't gotten started in this because there was a lot of shooting going on. And he says, yes, when I think of what Caldera might do, But no, when I think about that feeling in my chest as they ran away from us, that's a feeling worth dying for. And the gunslinger says, I envy you. Wouldn't you like, I wouldn't mind a few churches envying us (laughs) in the best way. If he's around, don't you want him booted out? Wouldn't that be fun to see him defeated and out the door and a release of the spirit to bear fruit for that unbelieving bondage to be broken so that people hear the gospel and go, they're not just talking about the world. They're talking about me. I need Christ. Anyway, I think I've gotten my point across, have I not? I have to stop. I'm five minutes over. So I think somewhere the school and the church together need to nail this down and see where does God want us to make restitution and see God honored. I believe a church thoroughly clean, just like a person. When I have to preach, I ask God, if there's anything I need to put under the blood, I want to do it because I want nothing holding the spirit back. And I made a commitment when I came here, and I've had up days and down days. I will not preach if I know I'm out of the spirit. I will not. And a church can choose that. A church thoroughly right with God is unstoppable, in my opinion. So, go for it, all you owners and little flockers. The Little Flockers. I like that. (laughs) Sounds like a movie. I have one last story. Can you bear with me for two minutes? No? This is important. It's on the notes. 
This, my wife is saying I may quickly. I'll go very quickly. This, I shared this one other time. This is called the pineapple story. Anybody remember that? You all remember it? I don't need to tell it then. They said, tell it. They said, tell it anyway, honey. She says, do it already. The pineapple story took place in Dutch New Guinea. It was a missionary. It's actually a missionary story. It covered a period of seven years. It's a humorous yet profound illustration of applying a basic scriptural principle like we're talking about here. So I'm going to give you the outline and then just the few pages that matter. They're working in this Papua area among the people. They've opened a clinic. They've opened a store so that the people come out of the jungle and become part of the community. And hopefully they can share the gospel with them because that's why missionaries are there to share the gospel with them. And they decided they'd like to have some pineapple, some fresh fruit to enjoy. They're way out in the bush. And so he manages to get some from fellow missionaries, and he hires one of the Papua to plant the garden for him. And they start to grow, and he says, I can't wait. We're going to taste delicious pineapples. And as they ripen, they get stolen, all of them. So he's trying to find out what's going on. He knows the natives are doing it, and so he keeps putting pressure on them. And so the first thing he did was, well, if you're going to keep stealing from me, I'm going to take away your clinic. So they took away the clinic, and they let their babies die and everything else. And so that's not working. So he opens the clinic, and they come back, and they keep stealing his pineapples. And he's getting angry. And he finally finds out who's stealing it. It's the guy that planted it because he said, if I plant it, I own it. And he said, no, no, you don't understand. And he's trying to explain to them, I paid you for that. No, no, they're mine. I, okay, so he tried some other tactic and some other deal and some other promise. Still, they're stealing the, it's disappearing. Not just the guy that planted them, but other natives going through the bush at night and they spot the ones that are ripe and they steal them. He's not tasted one pineapple, and boy, is he ticked. I'll show them. I'm going to shut down the store. So they say, well, if I can't get salt and other needs that we have at the store in this community, in the compound, we're going back into the jungle. So there I am, sitting by myself, eating a couple of pineapples, no people, no ministry. I said to my wife, look, we can eat pineapples back in the States. I mean, if that's all we're here to do... So a runner came along, he said, get them all back, we'll open the store tomorrow. They kept stealing them. He gets a German shepherd. <laughs> they go back into the jungle. Here he is alone, no ministry, nobody to talk to, nobody to translate for him, nothing. What is he going to do? He's fed up. He's angry. He keeps trying to jack them up and they won't listen. So finally, they're on break and come back to the States. He goes to a seminar where he learned that you must give everything you own to God. Did Hako say that in this room? The Bible says, if you give, you will have. If you keep for yourself, you will lose. Give your things to God and God will see that you have enough. It's a basic, it's a divine principle. I thought, man, I don't have anything to lose. I'll give that pineapple garden to God because I'm not going to eat the pineapples anyway. 
Now, I know that that's not a very good sacrifice. You're supposed to sacrifice something that's valuable to you, but I would give it to God and see if he could control it. I said, man, I'm going to see how he is going to do it. So I stood out in the garden one night. The people had gone home. I didn't want them to see me praying. I prayed, Lord, see these pineapple bushes. I have fought to have fruit from them. I have claimed them. I have stood up for my rights, my reputation, whatever it is you're standing up for. It's all wrong. I realize it now. I have seen that it is wrong. I give them to you. From now on, if you want me to eat any of your pineapples, if you want my church blessed, fill in the blank. It's yours. You just go right ahead and give them to us. If not, fine. It doesn't really matter. So I gave them to God and the natives stole them as usual. And I thought to myself, see, God, you can't control them either. Isn't that a riot? Then one day, they came to me and said, Tuan, outsider, you have become a Christian, haven't you? How would you react to that, my dear friend? I was ready to react and say, look, I've been a Christian for 20 years. But instead I said, why do you say that? That was a good answer. Why do you say that? They said, because you don't get angry anymore when we steal your pineapples. That was a revelation. Now I was living what I had been preaching to them. I had been telling them to love one another, to be kind to one another, and I had always been standing up for my rights, and they knew it. Finally, one bright lad started thinking and said, Now, why don't you get angry anymore? I said, Well, I've given that garden away. It isn't my garden anymore. You're not stealing my pineapples. I don't have to get angry anymore. It's not mine. Another guy started to think even more, and he said, well, who did you give it to? They looked around. Did he give it to you? Did he give it to you? Whose is it anyway? Whose pineapples are we stealing? Then I said, well, I've given the garden to God. They said, to God? Hasn't he got any pineapples where he is? <laughs> I said, I don't know whether he has or not, but I've given it to God. They went to the village and said, do you know whose pineapples we're stealing? Tuan has given them to God. They all started thinking about that one. They came back in a group and said, Tuan, you should not have done it. Why don't you get them back from God? No wonder we aren't getting pigs when we go out hunting. No wonder our babies are getting sick. No wonder our wives are not getting, giving birth. That's called adversity. No wonder the fish aren't biting. Then they said, we shouldn't steal them anymore if they're God, should we? Duh. They were afraid of God. So then the pineapples began to ripen. The natives came and said, Tuan, your pineapples are ripe. I said, they're not mine. They belong to God. Yeah, but you're going to get them rotten here. You had better pick them. So I got some and I let the natives take some. When my family sat down to eat them, I said, Lord, we're eating your pineapples. Thank you for giving them to us. All those years, those natives were watching me and listening to my words. They saw the two didn't match. But when I began to change, they did too. And soon many natives decided to become Christians. I'm done. Let's pray. Thanks for the patience of my brothers and sisters for the extra time. But God, in Jesus' name, we want you to have your way, not our way. Help the owners to be empowered by the Holy Spirit 
to lay hold of you and not let go until you bless them just like Jacob of old. I commend them to your grace today. Bless in Jesus' name this assembly, their shepherds, your future here, Lord. Amen and amen.